Welcome to the Hidden Things in Hidden Things. Before you continue, I have a couple of warnings. First, if you have not either read Hidden Things or already finished the audiobook and you intend to do so, you should stop listening to this podcast right now until you finish the story. I absolutely guarantee this podcast will spoil the ending and quite a few interesting surprises along the way. If you don't want that to happen to you, stop now. Second, if you prefer to think of your authors as all-knowing practitioners of their craft who always understand what's going on or know why so-and-so did such-and-such, you should stop listening to this podcast right now. Some people prefer their Oz both great and terrible and would not like to discover a flustered man hiding behind a curtain pushing and pulling at buttons and levers to maintain an illusion. This is a little yappy dog of a podcast, dead set on pulling back that curtain. So, you only get one warning, and that was it. Here we go. Welcome to the first Hidden Things and Hidden Things section which is going to go along with the first section of the podcast release that we're doing for the Hidden Things audiobook. So where did the, where did the epigraph come from? I, I'm not going to admit to the idea that I Googled for just Calliope and came up with a bunch of stuff, although that, was, that did inform some of the stuff. I think the epigraph came before the story. I think I had an idea that I really wanted the main character's name to be a Calliope, and I started to kind of dig into the various meanings of Calliope, which we get into later, like when she has a conversation much later with the dragon about the various meanings for it. That was me finally getting to regurgitate all that information. Yeah, spoilers, there's a dragon. Um, so, uh, and part of that was coming up with this, with this epigraph that actually, to me, was, it gave me a lot of really kind of neat ideas to, I mean, some of the stuff that's in here seems to match up with some of the stuff that happens in the story. And that's partly because this, you know, was sort of rattling around in the back of my head while I was writing it. So, but yeah, the Calliope stuff, there's reasons for her name to call out the muse and to call out all that, you know, that sort of epic stuff. And the fact that there was this thing to go along with it that I could then call back to later and, and make it be this sort of resonant name was part of it. So that, that kind of goes to the whole idea of, you know, where I got the name from, everything like that. I love the fact that it was a musical instrument and she was going to be a musical character which I will talk about later when there's actually music happening in the story. I want to talk a little bit about where all that inspiration came from. I don't think it's going to surprise anybody to know that this story was written a while ago and technology has changed tremendously. I wrote the first draft of this in 2010 or no, sorry, 2002. And in that version of it, and I still have it, I've gone back and looked and it's, it's embarrassing. In the very first version of it, um, she answers the phone on her bed and there's a hiccuped cellular connection. So, Josh did have a cell phone. I knew cell phones were out there. She then sets it down crossways on the, on the cradle and goes and gets the wireless phone that was in another room and walks off with that one with the, and then, hang, and then comes back and hangs up the phone next to the bed because that was the one that was on a, on a wire that she couldn't even go anywhere with. So the fact that I even went to a you know, the, the fact that she's on a wireless phone was actually me increasing the technology, you know, advancing the technology a couple of years. Uh, there was a couple other times where 
I, I was kind of caught out on the technology and had to update it um, throughout. Um, probably today I would write it and she would just have a cell phone and she would walk into the next room and that would be it. Um, that's certainly how I live. But at the time, the fact that she had a wireless phone was pretty high tech. I, I do mention time fairly frequently in here. I mentioned dates a couple of times. I mentioned days, Saturdays and so forth. One of the readers who actually is a backer for this project actually figured out which years it would have had to have been based on the date being the first day being Halloween and that it was on a Thursday or something like that, like worked out when it would have had to have been and, and determined that it would have had to have been in 2002 or in 2012. And the technology was nowhere near 2012. So it probably had to be, you know, I'm hoping that nobody else really looks at that close. Depending on how deep you are in publishing, you don't know that there's a, there's a big no, no about starting a story by having something wake up the main character. You're just not supposed to do it. Um, not because it's a bad thing necessarily, but it gets done a lot. So people are like, oh, whatever, they're getting woke up from bed. I didn't know that at the time. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And I was writing late at night a lot. So it, that just seemed to resonate with me and stuff like that. So you're really not supposed to do that. But I, I did want that for a couple of reasons. And part of it was I wanted Calliope's guard down because she's a pretty defensive person. That let her sort of shuffle around. There's a scene from a movie that probably a lot of people didn't see because the title is the kind of thing that's sort of off-putting. Did you ever see Exorcist 3? If you have, um, you know, George C. Scott, it's a good movie. Yeah, in my mind, it is the best of the Exorcist movies. And there's a bit in there where he's sitting there studying stuff at the kitchen table and it's very late at night and his daughter comes shuffling in, in her robe, like half awake. And she goes over and opens up the refrigerator and just stares at it. Doesn't even really know why she's even in front of the refrigerator. And then she sort of reaches out for something. She doesn't even reach for it. She stabs, kind of punches at whatever is in the refrigerator that she wants and grabs this bottle of milk or whatever and pulls it out comes over that has not even acknowledged her dad the entire time walks over kisses him on the forehead says it's late you should go to bed and then shuffles off and that's that's it and i just it really resonated with me it felt so much like you know the way you feel when you're up at that point you don't even know why you're up but you're just kind of like zombieing around the room and i wanted that feeling with clavy so there's a bit in the in that first scene with her where she's She's up there and she walks into the, she's talking to Josh and she opens up the refrigerator because that's what you do when you walk in the kitchen. And she doesn't actually ever take anything out of it. She just closes it again. It's just this thing that you do. And she's so on automatic pilot at that point in time that she just, just does it. And that was, I, I wanted to capture that. I, I guess that scene from, hopefully the guys from the extras aren't going to say that I plagiarized something, but you know, that, that, that feeling, uh, that feeling of that just mindless automa automation that you get at late at night was what I was looking for. So Vicus appearing at Bush and Taylor, which I think is actually an intersection in LA somewhere. For those of you who are wondering, the, show, the, the story is actually, it starts in LA. I've had people, I've had readers tell me that they thought it was LA, that they thought it was San Francisco, um, San Diego, uh, Portland, both Portlands, uh, Oh, there's more than two, granted, but Portland, Maine, and Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Chicago, Boston, and New York. It works-ish. I mean, if you don't pay too close attention to the fact that they pass through Colorado and, and Castle Rock and that sort of thing. This was a really interesting scene to do. I really, I didn't know exactly what I wanted with Vicus, except I wanted him to be a clown. One of my first readers, Dee Knippling, commented after she'd read it that she thought it was really interesting that somebody who has this face paint on it looks like face paint but it's not really face paint so it looks like a fake face but it's actually his real face we see him for the first time leaning against a facade 
that fronts a, a building that's probably not nearly as nice as the facade. And she just thought that was really nicely symbolic, which I completely agree with. I just wish I had done it on purpose. Ficus is the first appearance of magic in the story. Well, that's okay. That's not true. Ficus is the first appearance of magic in the story that's anywhere near Calliope. Obviously, something weird happened when Josh died, but we don't really get to see it. I mean, we get to see it because we're special reader people, but nobody else gets to see it. So this is the first thing that happens anywhere near Calliope that's in her timeline, so to speak, or in her path. And I wanted it to be, I wanted the reader to know things are going to be different once he's here. I think probably it started out a little bit more subtly, but then I decided I wanted to have some real fun with it. So the idea of this sort of almost the magician's trick and the idea, there was a line that I took out. I, I missed the line. This is one of my darlings that I had to kill. There was a feeling of the awe and surprise that you get from a, from a magician's trick and the instinct to check your wallet, which was in a nutshell, what it was like to be around Vicus. And that, that's sort of what it is. You know, it's just like, it's amazing, but at the same time, you don't exactly trust the guy. I couldn't make it as direct as I originally had it, but I got to come at it kind of sideways with the magician's audience bit and, and stuff like that. And I like Vicus. Vicus is, wow, that's hard. I can't say Vicus is my favorite character, but he's definitely, <laughs> I've said this before about my kids. So this is actually going to go down for posterity in a recording. You know, I don't have favorites. I love all my children. Sometimes I have least favorites. In this case, I don't have favorite characters. I love all of them, but I love them a lot more when they're on screen. So Vicus is great. I love him a lot when he's there. But, you know, I like Calliope too. And I like, God help me, I even like Gluin, which we'll get to. Uh, we'll talk about Gluin some more. Nobody else likes Gluin, so I have to like him a lot more to make it up for, for everybody else. I love the dragon. Of course I love the dragon. Who doesn't love the dragon? So yeah, uh, Vicus, this was his first bit where you knew he was going to bring really cool stuff to the rest of the story. Because Calliope is pretty straightforward. And Josh is dead. And the only other critter that we've seen up to this point in time killed him. So he's not going to be any fun. So Vicus is here, and when he comes, cool stuff happens, which is great. We'll talk more about Walker uh, as well down the road, because in, in the intervening time, I'm going to have a chance to Google and find the actor that I'm thinking of. I had a very strong visual idea for who Walker looked like and who Daryl Johnson looked like. Uh, Daryl Johnson is actually an actor that I've, uh, he's, been, he's been on some TV shows or something like that. I think I've seen him on Charmed. I describe him in a short story that'll be in the Little Things collection as the body of a linebacker and the face of a kindergarten teacher. And just this idea of this sort of gentle giant who is, at the same time, has some real strength to him. Gentle giants probably would, but just this idea that he has a real, he has a steel backbone. And he's a family man. He's the guy who's, he's got a wife, he's got kids, his life is basically normal. And I think that's one of the reasons that he can be sort of a, a pillar to this. Walker is not meant to be a nice person. And that obviously comes out more in the rest of the story. But this idea that he's this sort of twisted, wrung out guy. There's an actor, like I said. Editor's note, the actor's name was Ed Lauder. He imprinted on me very strongly probably when I was younger. And for me, that's, that's who this guy was. It's not even an intentional good cop, bad cop. And it comes out later. They're not from the same department. They don't get along with each other. Johnson was saddled with this guy who may or may not even be an actual agent, you know, FBI agent or whatever. And I think that first scene really lays it out pretty well. Johnson is matter of fact, but he's nice about it. And then Walker comes in with immediately with like, no offense, but let me say the most offensive thing I possibly can. Did you kill your friend? 
I should tell the origin story. I've told this a hundred times. I think probably the person that I tell it about has never heard it. So maybe she will this time. So I wrote this, and I think everybody should know this. I wrote this as part of NaNoWriMo back in 2002. This was the second NaNoWriMo novel that I wrote. The first one will never see the light of day. I love it very much, but I'm going to keep it in the attic with all the properly mutated things. It was the second NaNoWriMo. I wanted to do it. I, I had kind of barely got by by the skin of my teeth on the first one, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to write. I had a general idea. We were having a snacky afternoon kind of get together with some friends, most of whom had either done NaNoWriMo or were writers or friends of writers or family of writers, which is a lot like being a writer, except you don't get to write. You just have to deal with all the suffering of the time wasted. And there was also, there in the group was uh, Dee Knippling, who, if you're not reading her, you should read her. She writes some great stuff. Uh, my daughter's currently reading one of her kids' books. She writes some stuff under Dee Knippling. She writes some other stuff under Dee Kenyon. So Dee Knippling was bemoaning the fact that while there was urban fantasy and, you know, modern fantasy stuff, you know, set in cities in New York and all that stuff that was, that was done pretty heavily back at that point. There wasn't anything set out in the Midwest. There was nothing set out in the country, out in farms and anything like that. And as, a, as an expatriate of South Dakota, and at that point, I'm a pretty happy expatriate of South Dakota. My response to that was, that's because nothing magical ever happens in the Midwest. Ever, 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 ever happens in the Midwest. And she looked at me and said, yes, that's your fault. And I was, my response was a, was a well-articulated, what? And she said, well, you know, you write these kinds of stories and you're from there. So you know exactly how they should go together. And that's what you, that's what you need to write next. And I started to explain why that was never going to happen. And she said, I dare you. Which was, of course, the end of the conversation because those words will get me in a lot of trouble. So I decided that was going to be the story I was going to write, where it was something sort of, a, you know, an urban fantasy magical type of thing. Uh, that was going out to the Midwest, but I still felt that kind of thing where nothing magical ever happens there. And that's where Calliope comes from initially. She comes from that place where nothing magical ever happens in the Midwest. I left there and I'm happy to be gone, etc. And over the course of writing the story, I had to convince her that she was wrong, which in the process meant I had to convince myself that I was wrong. So Reading Calliope, especially in the first half of the book, is a lot like looking at me from 10 years ago going, dude, it's not that bad. It really, it's kind of nice back there. It's pretty awesome. I don't necessarily want to live there. People, I'm never going to move back to South Dakota, but, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great place to be from and it is a great place to go back to. So, and there is some magic out there. So that was, that was a, that was where initially a lot of that happened. And then other people started to chime in and shout stuff from the kitchen while they were making food, say, make her a detective and it should do this. And Make it a female lead, because one of our one of my friends is just a fan of reading, and I didn't know about writing female characters. I wasn't. I mean, not that I'd never written any female character ever, but I'd never done it as a main, and I thought that would be interesting too. Um, I've gotten a lot of compliments about that, uh, one way or the other, saying, you know, you write her really realistically, you write her, you know, very believably. You know, is there any trick that you do to that? Because I've seen you write your other stuff, and that's totally the you know, voice is very believable and what i did find from that what I, my trick is that i write her like a person i write her what i honestly think that i could take this entire story and change calliope to a guy and change josh to his ex girl you know the new character's ex-girlfriend and everything works 
the choices are the same. And probably the few people who have come back to me saying, Calliope's a bitch. Calliope's mean. Calliope, I can't believe anybody would ever act like that. Would All their opposition to that would just go away. Because for them, in their, in their view of things, you know, a guy can act like that and a girl can't. Whatever. I think people are people and you write them as believably as you would be in that scene and do what you believe is true to that and it's going to it's going to work so yeah my weird trick to writing women believably is treating them like people which i've heard they are so it works really well okay so for the next the next podcast coming up it's going to be uh we have a we have some scenes with calliope and lauren we have a very with a short cameo appearance by vicus that doesn't go very well and I think a little bit more of stuff, a little bit more stuff with the uh, detective. Oh, you know what else? We get the we get the voicemail. We get the big voicemail coming up. Yes, we have an actual physical. Another little throwback. Hey, I made it digital, and it was all smart and stuff. But yeah, answering machine and a little bit of drinking and some pizza and stuff like that in the detective agency. And uh, oh, that's gonna be a good one. That'll be fun. <laughs>